Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Well, tonight we're going to begin in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, because it kind of it fits better with chapter 6. And always remember that the chapters and the verses were not part of the original text. Uh, actually, the chapters came first, and sometime later the verses were added to the chapters that were given. And uh, I don't know if they all, always got it in the exact right spot. This one seemed to fit better with Jericho than everything else that had happened in chapter 5. But just to review, it's been a couple of weeks in our last study in the book of Joshua, and Joshua 3, verses, uh, beginning chapter 3, going through chapter 5, verse 12, Israel had entered into the promised land. They'd crossed over the Jordan River, and they did so on dry ground. And if you recall... The instructions was for the priest to go first. And as soon as the priest and the hems of their garment, their feet would touch the water, then God would cause the water to stand up uh, some miles north about, it's believed, the region that they tell us where the area stood up was about 10 miles north of where they crossed. So Israel didn't necessarily see the standing up of the waters. What they saw was the drying up of the waters that allowed their nation to cross over on dry ground. And the priest had to bear the ark and stand in the middle of the Jordan the whole time while the people crossed over, and they hurried across. But it reminds us that when God gives us a vision, a call on our lives, maybe a desire, sometimes he does not begin to act in our behalf until we're willing to take that step of faith, willing to get our feet wet first. After their crossing, Israel built two memorials, one in the river where the priest stood, and the other in Gilgal where the Ark of the Covenant would first be erected there in the promised land, also where Israel first um, held their camp there in the promised land. And I think about the one that is in the river. Um, to me, I mean, depending on the depth of the river and the height of the stones, maybe they were visible at some point. Maybe you only saw the rippling of the water around the stones. There would be seasons when the water would dry up that the stones would be revealed. But both of these memorials were to be used by Israel to teach their children. The children, when they asked, what's the pile of stones about? Then they were able to teach their children, the next generation, um, about the mighty work of God in their lives and how God worked for Israel at that time. And we should have such memorials. We should have... uh, places where we can teach our children about the work of God in our lives that we can encourage the next generation of worshipers. Once in the promised land, the men who had not been circumcised had to be circumcised. They, while they were in the wilderness, their parents 
I mean, this is something the parents do for the children. And for Israel, it was supposed to be on the eighth day, and they failed to do so. So you had uh, part of the men of Israel who had been circumcised while they were in Egypt, another part who had never been circumcised. And so there wasn't unity in the camp. And the sign of circumcision meant that they were no longer to live after the flesh, but the things of God to bring unity in the nation once again. And on, they also observed Passover there in the promised land. On the day after Passover, they ate the unleavened bread and the parched grain of the land, and the manna ceased. And so from that day forward, Israel would eat the produce of the promised land. For 40 years, God had provided water when they needed it. He provided manna daily for them, except on the Sabbath when they would take a double portion on the sixth day. And yet now they were in the promised land. They began to partake of the land filled with milk and honey. So that kind of brings us up to where we left off last time we were in the chapter. And here in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, we're going to take this section section all the way through chapter 6. And verse 5 of chapter 6 is a key A key verse for me, it says, And it shall come to pass, when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Before that long blast, though, Joshua went out to survey Jericho. And it tells us in Joshua 5:13 through 15, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord, Adonai, what does my Lord say to his servant and the commander of the Lord's army, Yahweh's army, said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So chapter 5 closes with Joshua meeting the commander of the Lord's army. And many believe that this was Jesus, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus. Some have dubbed this a Christophany, which would be described as an Old Testament appearance of Jesus prior to his coming, what we read about in the New Testament. Now, We do know that this was a theophany, that this was God appearing in the Old Testament. Whether it was Jesus Christ or not, we cannot be sure in those terms, but we do know that it was God. And, you know, could it be God of the second person? I believe that it could. Would it have been the form of Jesus? Maybe, maybe not. We do know that Jesus came and 
uh, took on flesh from John's gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. So no doubt these theophanies were all preludes to the coming Christ when Christ did come and put on flesh and dwell among us. But Joshua's question, are you for us? Or are you against us? That's important when you're about ready to go to battle, and especially when you see someone, as described here, standing with his sword drawn. Joshua wanted to know if he had a showdown right now or if there was going to be a peace treaty between them. But the response of the angel of the Lord was, no, in a sense, neither. But... He went on to say, As the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now this is important for Joshua because the word of the Lord came to Joshua that through Moses that the angel would go before him to keep him in his way. In Exodus 23, 20 and through 24, Behold, I, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do not all that I and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, to the Hittites, to the Perizzites, to the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. And so in those verses, we have the explanation of the no. Are you with us or against us? No. See, in these verses, in Exodus 23, 20 through 24, the explanation is, I'll be with you if you obey my voice and do not provoke the Lord. But if you provoke him, he will not pardon your transgressions. So the sword of the Lord can either be against the enemy or come against Israel. And I think we have some good examples of this. We'll see it tonight in this battle against Ai. Because of sin, Israel would experience defeat. God's sword then came against them. This is specifically seen with David. When in his older age, he sent out his a cousin to number the troops. It was more than just a cousin that went out to number the troops, but that was his commander over his armies. And um, his cousin tried to persuade him that this isn't a good thing. You shouldn't want to number your troops. But David was persistent. And so they went out and they brought in a number to David. And this became a sin. It was a sin because... Up to that point, David had always trusted in the Lord, the might of the Lord. He was often, even at the beginning of meeting David as a young boy, uh, going up against a giant, he was always outnumbered, or often outnumbered. And now he wanted to number his troops that he might gauge the might of his army instead of keeping his dependency upon God. 
And so as a result, they were counted from Dan to the far north down to Beersheba. It's basically a way of saying from Dan to Beersheba there in Israel. From the north to the south, they numbered the troops. And a plague then came, and 70,000 were killed in Israel. Now the angel came to Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 24:16, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who is destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. We go over to 1 Corinthians 21:16. David lifted up his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth and having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So here we have a, again the angel of the Lord, a drawn sword, uh, this time stretched out over Jerusalem. Jerusalem came under the wrath of God because of the disobedience of David. And at that time, God heard David's prayer, directed him to erect an altar on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David purchased the property to offer this offering to the Lord. And there David would erect an altar, uh, erect actually uh, a new tent for to house the tabernacle of God to house the Ark of the Covenant and the furnishings of God. And it was at this place that Solomon would build the temple of the Lord. But it came all from the result of David coming to disobedience to the Lord in such a way that God judged Israel. So the sword, are you for us or are you against us? No. But as long as they would walk in obedience with the Lord... God would be an enemy to their enemies. And this is where we find them at this time. In our text, Joshua fell down on his face before the angel. He was commanded to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground. It reminds us of Moses when he saw the burning bush and was required also to remove his sandals because he was on holy ground. And their worship tells us that this man was no mere angel of Yahweh because even the faithful angels and there are those who have been unfaithful like Satan and the demons who fell from heaven but the faithful ones they never receive worship from anyone in Revelation 22 8 and 9 John saw and heard these things it tells us the apostle John he fell down to worship before the feet of the angel to sh- who showed me these things. And the angel said to him, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of his this book, worship God. So mere angels, even... Humans were not to receive worship from others. Only God, His Son, the Spirit of God, are to be worshipped. And yet concerning the Spirit, in John fifteen twenty six, the Word tells us, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. And so we have the 
work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's bringing testimony of Jesus to us. And it's to Jesus, according to Philippians 2.10, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. So he receives his marching orders in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was securely shut up. Because of the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war, and you shall all go around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests will bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Then it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horns. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So they're, they're given the marching orders. And the plan seems not too difficult, but it does certainly seem odd. He began with the promise, though, to Joshua, saying in verse 1, or verse 2, See, I have given. It's a done deal with the Lord. I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king it's mighty men of valor. And so he began with the promise to Joshua. I've already given them into your hand. This is what you need to do. So the, perhaps that's a bit of the explanation of the battle plan. This was the Lord's battle and not that of the people's. Some translations, Joshua 6.2 reads like this. See, I'm about to defeat Jericho for you. All Israel needed to do was follow the instructions of Yahweh to march around the city once a day for six days. With the men of war going first, followed by seven priests having trumpets and the ark of God and the rear guard following behind. But on the seventh day, they would take seven laps around the city. And at the end of the seventh lap, there would be the long blast of the trumpets and when the people heard the sound, they would give a great shout. And uh, the way it reads to me in verse 5, all the people will shout. And then the wall of the city will fall down flat and, every, and, uh, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So uh, we think of marching around the city. So you're not facing the city. You're parallel with the walls of the city. But when they stopped, when the trumpet was being blown, they turned. They looked at the walls of the city. The people witnessed the power of God as they shouted there before the walls of Jericho. So it tells us, verses 6 through 14. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of rams, horns, before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who 
is armed, advanced before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came up after the ark while the priests continued to blow the trumpets which Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice, nor shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day that I say to you, shout, and then you shall shout. So when he had the ark of the Lord circled the city going around it once, then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose Early in the morning, the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went and continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord and the priests continued blowing their trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once returning to the camp. So they did six days. So for six days, they took their lap around the walls of Jericho. And the people remained silent while the priests blew the trumpets and continued to blow. So these long blasts of the trumpets while the people remained silent. This is kind of unusual in this type of warfare. So often they would try to intimidate with the noise of the battle, with the shouts. And yet I could envision that perhaps on the first day, the people of Jericho who watched as Israel marched around their city, maybe they watched in fear. But as it continued on, they probably relaxed a little bit. They probably began to ridicule. They probably began to uh, shout at Israel, which would even make it more difficult to not want to respond. Have you ever been in a situation where you are getting laid into by someone verbally and you just want to respond? I have found often that it's sometimes better to keep my mouth shut and not to give an immediate response. Sometimes those responses can get us in trouble. But it had to be difficult for Israel to even do this but they were faithful to remain silent as they marched around the city. This was not a typical besieging of the city. There was no shouting from Israel, no threats of battle, just a silent march around Jericho for six days. It reminded me of Habakkuk 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and let all the earth keep silence before him. So it was, verses 15 through 21, and it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it was so when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, and it and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because 
she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, keep yourselves from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when they take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout. The walls fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him. And they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. So on that seventh day, after Israel finished their first lap, I'm sure the people on the in Jericho were probably thinking, okay, they're going to leave again. I don't know what they're up to. But Israel didn't leave. They took a second lap, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh. No doubt the people in the wall began to get nervous. Something was different about this day. And no doubt Israel began to get excited because there was something different. They knew the battle plan. They knew that God, they were going to see the Lord God fight for them. All they needed to do was shout when the priests would blast the trumpets. The city had been doomed by the Lord to destruction. It also might read that the city and all that is in it must be set apart for the Lord. Verse 17. And this is explained in a number of places. We have it explained to us in our text in verses 18 and 19, but also in Genesis 15. I'm going to read these for you. Deuteronomy 20 and Leviticus 27. Why did God destroy all the people, both young and old? Genesis 15:13 and 16. God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and will, they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and afterwards Israel will come out with great possessions. Now this is pertaining to the promised land. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried at a good age, and in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God here in Genesis 15, he's telling Abraham of how Israel would be in captivity for over 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was going to bring judgment upon the land of Canaan. And yet God waited 400 years, actually um, between five and 600 years when we dated all the way back to Abram, when God gave Abram this prophecy. And again, in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 18, it says, But the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, You shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, 
the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to their abominations, which they have done before their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So again, God bringing judgment. And God didn't want the new nation of Israel to be tainted by their worship to false gods, the abominations that they had done before their gods. Ultimately, Israel would be tainted by these things. But that was not God's desire for them. Leviticus 27, 28, and 29, Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that is his, both man and beast, or a field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who shall come doomed or doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. So here we have in Leviticus 17, verses 28 and 29, a bit of both. Here you have those who have been doomed to destruction. They could not be redeemed. But also the things that have been devoted to the Lord. God said, of all the metals in the city, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, it is mine. And it will go to the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now the walls of the city falling flat. The neat thing about Israel today, though some say that uh, Israel has no right to the land, um, archaeologists who love the nation of Israel and love to study the Word of God simply read Scripture and they search the land to see of what they read about in Scripture if it can be discovered in Israel. And here's a, a few things that they have revealed. Excavations there reveal, this is in Jericho, that its fortifications featured a stone wall 11 feet high and 14 feet wide. Now, I was a a brick mason for 20 years, and we built a lot of walls. I've never built a wall that's 14 feet thick, but I have seen walls that maybe were um, 8, 10, 12, 16 inches get in a heavy wind, rock and fall. And we've watched them go down at times and at other times just show up in the morning and see them laying down. So seeing a skinny wall fall down doesn't surprise me. Seeing a wall that's 14 feet thick fall out flat, that's got to be the work of the Lord. That's just my observation as a brick mason. Its top was smooth, stone, sloped, angling upward. So 11 feet high, 14 feet wide, but the top angled up 35 degrees for 35 feet, and then it joined with a massive stone wall that towered even higher. It was virtually impregnable. The walls of Jericho also represented... Uh, the earliest technology of walls that were designed for purely military purposes. This city was designed to keep enemies out. And yet Hebrews 11.30 tells us, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. In 
1997, they were digging around Jericho. They discovered that what the Bible says in 620 is that the wall fell down flat, that piles of mud brick from the collapsed walls were found, confirming that the walls were not destroyed by battering ram, but that they collapsed. The Bible also says in verse 24 that the city and everything in it was burned, and they found a layer of ash three feet thick that remained of burnt timbers and debris that were found there. So history, they can dig around, they can find this battle site. Second Corinthians tells us, Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And certainly Israel at this time was not warring according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So the weapons of our warfare, they are not fleshly, but according to the Spirit, Certainly, for Israel, that was true at this time. So Joshua says, everyone was to die but Rahab. And in verses 22 through 25, we continue that account. And it tells us, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. The young men went and brought, who had spied, went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. And so they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp. The outside of the camp, they were unclean at this time. And so there would be a purification process for them. Rahab was not. She trusted in God for her deliverance, but not yet a worshiper of God. But she would soon become so. But they burned the city, verse 24, and all that was in it with fire, only silver and gold, and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who raises up and builds the city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. So all were killed except for Rahab and her family and the possessions that they had. Everything was spared because she had hidden the two spies and sent them on the way safely. One of the commentators, I thought, I found this interesting. I want to read it to you. The Canaanites had heard of God's awesome power. We read about that in Joshua chapter 2. Such awareness should have prompted their repentance, but they remained resistant to God. The Canaanite Rahab was saved, and so was her family. 
And they are proof that the Canaanites could have avoided destruction if they had repented. No person had to die. God desires that the wicked turn from their sins rather than perish. It was by placing their faith in God. She, really in a God she had not yet known, but had only heard about, but soon would see and experience his matchless power, which saved her from certain death because she put her trust in him. Hebrews 11.31, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. It was an issue of faith. And only Rahab and all who was in her household was afforded life because of the faith of one person, Rahab. And so Joshua had cursed the city of Jericho. He announced a curse that we read about in 1 Kings 16.29, the fulfillment of it. It was at the time of Ahab that this took place. It tells us in 1 Kings 16.33 that this evil king did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab provoked God to anger more than any of the kings of Israel before him. In his day, Hillel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abraham, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he has spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So, This is kind of cool in the sense of using Scripture to bring commentary to Scripture. Joshua pronounced a curse, and that's all it tells us. In Joshua 6, 26, Joshua charged them, Cursed be the man before the Lord who raises up and builds this city of Jericho. Shall lay its foundation with the firstborn, and its youngest he shall set up its gates. And in 1 Kings 16.34, we learn that it was according to the word of the Lord that Joshua pronounced this curse upon Jericho. As for Joshua, his fame spread throughout the land. And this was the promise of the Lord to him. In Joshua 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So a few things before we move on to chapter 7. Many people dislike the Old Testament because of its war, because of the violence that's found here. But we need to remember that God had waited over 400 years, I believe between five and 600 years, from the time that God gave the prophecy in, to Abram in Genesis 15:16, until the children of Israel came into the promised land at least 500 years had passed probably closer to 600 it reminds us in 2nd Peter 3 9 the Lord is not slack concerning his promises toward us as some account slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance Number two, since the battle was the Lord's, all Israel needed to do was follow God's battle plan. 
In a similar way, the Lord has already given us victory over the enemy of sin and death and ensures salvation who all, to all who put their faith in him. All we need to do is follow God's plan. In Romans 8, 13 and 14, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And finally, Rahab was not only saved, but became part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. As she became the wife of Salmon, who was the mother of Boaz, according to Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. It's interesting that in the genealogy that Matthew gives us in his gospel of Jesus Christ, that he names four women in that genealogy. That was not a customary thing to do, to even name one woman in a genealogy. He named four. All four of them had questionable backgrounds. All four of them came into the lineage of Christ. So now we find that there's a price of disobedience. In verse 20, I chose as the key verse here, it's Achan's confession. He said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. Now, a lot of people will talk about their sin, and, and a lot of times you'll hear whatever they're doing. It's like, I'm not hurting anyone. It's kind of a common saying among people when you confront them. Maybe it's a child. I'm not hurting anybody. And yet here we find in this chapter, in Joshua chapter 7, the cost of disobedience comes at a high price. It was a small ripple that began in Achan's life that turned into a tsunami that not only swept over his own life, his family, but the lives of 36 innocent men and the whole nation was impacted because of his sin. So we pick up in verses 1 through 5, Joshua chapter 7, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent, and therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. There's so much in these five verses. I'm going to point out just a few things for you. First of all, Joshua was totally unaware that God's anger burned against the nation of Israel. 
He had sent men to go spry out the conditions of Ai to help with his battle plan. And the men reported that the city was small. It was insignificant. And they would only need two or 3,000 of their men to go up for victory. I find this interesting because in chapter 8, when they finally take the city of Ai, it tells us some 12,000 men died there. And so they're planning for a battle, and you're going up against an area that has 12,000 men, saying, you know what, we probably two or 3,000, that's all we need. The odds... Right from the get-go, we're not, from the physical sense, we're not in Israel's favor. But this might be because they had a trusting God, but they, again, did not know that the anger of the Lord had burned against them. So Joshua listened to their counsel, but their surprise was that the men were routed in battle, 36 of them dying. And the report of their defeat came to Joshua, and the people's hearts melted, became like water. At the walls of Jericho, the people's faith was so strong, they trusted in Yahweh. They watched the walls fall out flat. But at the walls of Ai, here now the people's hearts melted because of this defeat. So it's interesting that while the enemies in Jericho had hearts that had melted, we read about this in Joshua 2.11. As soon as we heard these things, this is Rahab talking to the two spies. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in any one because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now... It's Israel's hearts that have melted. And there was no spirit left in them. Now Israel became uh, weak because of the unfaithfulness of one man. Ezekiel 9:18 tells us, this is not Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes. I only have the abbreviation here, and I couldn't remember what that abbreviation stood for for a moment. Ecclesiastes 9.18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Certainly, here we see that one sinner destroys much good. So Joshua goes back in verses 6 through 9. He asked the Lord, why? Then Joshua tore his clothes. He fell on to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we have been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They will surround us and cut us off, cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? God, if you don't help us, this is going to hurt your reputation. What will you do for your great name? 
Here, Joshua is asking why, but he had not yet learned the reason behind their defeat. But he did some good things. When he heard the news, he tore his clothes. It's a sign of mourning. He fell to the earth. He put dust on his head, and he did ask the Lord. He waited there before the Lord until evening. It reminded me of the time of the evening sacrifice before he even lifted up his voice in prayer. He prepared himself to speak with the Lord. Now, you have to wonder, because you don't read about Joshua praying until after their defeat, that if he would have prayed before they went to war, that perhaps God would have said, you know what? Before you go to this town of Ai, there's some uh, house cleaning you guys need to do here in your own camp. We don't read of Joshua and the elders praying until after their defeat. But if they would have prayed before, perhaps the sin of Achan might have been exposed. And this is typical of so many believers. The battle of Jericho, well, it was beyond Israel's ability, and they knew it. And so they just had to trust in the Lord. All they had to do is watch the Lord bring victory. But in contrast, the city of Ai, it's a small and insignificant city. We don't even need to bring up all the men, just two or 3,000. They believe that they could handle it on their own. And there are times in our own life that we do the same thing. We have situations where we just have to cry out to the Lord. We know we cannot deal with it apart from the Lord's help. And then there's other times we, we like Israel, I got this one, Lord. No, you're busy, I know. No need to trouble you with this one. I'll take it. I've learned. I have faith. So he did good things after he found out. Uh, before he prayed, he tore his clothes, a sign of mourning and remorse. He fell on his face before the Lord toward the tabernacle. In a sense, came to the house of God where the ark of God was. He prayed toward that. These are things we learn about, the mourning, the weeping in James 4, 9, and 10, uh, praying toward the temple in 1 Kings 8, 29, and 30. And Joshua and the elders fasted. They had dust on their heads until evenings. And so all these things, signs of mourning, remaining in the state, connected it, I believe, with the evening sacrifice, where we find an example of this in Nehemiah 1, in Nehemiah 9, 1. Now the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth, with dust on their heads. And then in Judges 20, verse 26, all the children of Israel, that is, all the people went up to come to the house of God and wept. They sat before the Lord. They fasted that day until the evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And finally, Joshua prayed. But the Lord responded to his prayer. This is always a good thing to hear the Lord say this. In verses 10 through 13, so the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? 
Israel has sinned, and they have transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have taken some of the accursed things that, and have stolen and deceived and have put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemy, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up! Sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemy until you take away the accursed thing from among you. So Joshua, he did a good thing in humbling himself before the Lord, but Yahweh let him know that this is not a time for prayer, it's a time for action. You need to get up. There's sin in the camp, and it needs to be dealt with. Now, he used the word sin and transgression in this section here. So he talked about sin, verse 11. Israel has sin. They have transgressed my covenant. So sin, if we take it in the Greek, in the New Testament Greek, it would be harmatia. And it is a wrongdoing. You miss the mark. And so it's the most general word translated as sin in the New Testament of our Bible. A trespass, it could be either intentional or unintentional. But transgression is a disobedience with intent. Parabasis is the Greek word. A disobedience with intent. So there was sin. They missed the mark. There was transgression. It was disobedient with intent. And we'll see what the intent was as we continue reading on in a moment. Someone had taken the accursed things. And they were told to stay away from them back in Joshua chapter 6, verses 18 through 19. It's interesting that God held the whole nation accountable for one man's sin. At this point, Israel had an option of either dealing with the sin or not. And they decided that the sin had to be purged from their midst. If not, they would never be able to stand before their enemies again. But before restoration could take place, the whole nation had to sanctify themselves before Yahweh. Lamentations 3 40 through 41 says, Let's search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. So a bit of reading, but I'm going to read us through the end of this chapter. Picking up in verse 14 down through 26. And in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And you shall be about the tribe which the Lord takes shall be shall come according to families and the families which the Lord takes shall come by household and the household which the Lord takes shall come by man and it shall be that he who has taken the accursed thing shall be burned with fire he and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful disgraceful thing in Israel so Joshua rose early in the morning brought Israel by their tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought, now 
notice nowhere does it tell us how Joshua knew any of this. They could have been using uh, the Urim and the Thummim of the high priest uh, to determine this, but it doesn't tell us how he knew. But the tribe of Judah was taken. And then he brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken, and he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah was taken. So Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold weighing 15 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And they are hidden in the earth in the midst of the tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver under it. They took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua. All the children of Israel laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all the children of Israel took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver and the garment, the wedge of gold and the sons and the daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tents, all that he had, he brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised up over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. So God turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor to this day, or the Valley of Trouble to this day. So with God's help, they soon discovered who was guilty as Achan from the tribe of Judah. But it was only Achan and his family that paid the high price of this. Again, the ripple of this sin you know, at the beginning, I said a lot of people say, well, I'm not hurting anyone. Well, actually, when a father falls in a, a state of sin, he hurts his family, his wife, his children. And, and then beyond that, you can hurt so many others. Here, it was the whole nation who was impacted by this one man's sin. And it, largely because we find in Scripture at the beginning of new, any new work of God, he often brought more severe judgment. I mean, this was according to the law of God. God later on would show compassion to Israel because there were many who deserved this type of judgment according to the law, but they would not be stoned, they would not be burned. But here at the beginning, that's how it was. Like in the early church when Ananias and Sapphira uh, sinned against the Lord by pretending that they sold property and given everything to the Lord. And it cost them at that time their lives. But even Peter told them, while the property was yours, it was yours to do with what you wanted. And if you wanted to only give a portion to the Lord, that would have been fine. But you chose to lie about the situation and the sin cost them. 
And for here, he saw the beautiful Babylonian garments, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold. He coveted them. He hid them. And it cost him, his family, all that he had, the lives of 36 other men. It was the high price of one man's sin. When we think about the cost of sin, we can't help but think about the disobedience of Adam. Through his disobedience, Yahweh has brought sin upon, well, it was the disobedience of Adam, Yahweh, told Adam in this garden of all the trees you may eat of it, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the day that Adam and Eve took of that fruit, death came to all, to themselves, to their descendants. And today we have an inherent sin nature because of that. But we think about one man's act and the high price of one man's act and death that results in that. We also think about one man's act and the life that came from it. Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound too many. Instead of death, today life is offered to those who place their faith in one man, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for your word. And that which you have taught us this evening from these chapters in the book of Joshua. We have seen victory and defeat uh, laid out before us in these chapters. And Lord, in our lives, I'm sure that we have experienced both victory and defeat. Sometimes, Lord, defeat might come because of something that someone else did, like Achan did, and Israel, the whole nation, was defeated before the people of Ai. Sometimes, Lord, that defeat comes because of the things that we have done. But we thank you, Lord, that there is victory in your name, and that you have paid the price of our sin, and that you have made a way out, a way of escape through the blood of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Tonight we give you praise for those great gifts, and we ask that we would walk as obedient people in the day that we live in, that many more may be saved. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.